Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When a woman's lifeless body is found lying in a driveway... Being shot to the face seemed like it was an immediate ambush. Residents of Gross Point, Michigan, are gripped with fear. I was absolutely shocked when I heard about the homicide here. Police think they've found the killers. Guys were bragging that they had committed the murder in Gross Point. But someone keeps running interference. We clearly were being stonewalled. It leaves them wondering what skeletons lurk behind closed doors. I firmly believe without a shadow of a doubt that she knows who did this. How well do you know your neighbors? What lies behind the white picket fences? Nestled along the shores of Lake St. Clair, Gross Point, Michigan seems a world away from the urban decay of neighboring Detroit. Built in the heyday of Motor City, it's a place where picturesque homes dot tree-lined streets. If you've driven down Lakeshore Drive, that's a beautiful drive with multi-million dollar mansions that all have lake views. The kind of town where residents only worry is penciling in a tennis match or a sailing vacation. Just a different uh, breed of people. Gross Point uh, eventually developed a reputation for the preppy individuals. It's a nice place to live and to raise a family. Working-class girl Barbara Iskey didn't exactly grow up in Gross Point. She lived in nearby Detroit, along with her siblings and her niece, Karen Hibner. My Aunt Barbara was probably the most kind-hearted person you could ever meet. She coached uh, my softball team when I was younger. She came to all of our activities. 
Although Barbara has no children of her own, she dotes on her nieces and nephews. She was only 14 years older than I was, so she was kind of more like a big sister than an aunt. The reason I drank tea is because she drank tea. The reason I'm an accountant is because she was in accounting. And as a budding accountant, Barbara works her way up at different companies over the years. My cousins and I aspired to be like her because she was a career woman and she was successful. Although Barbara lives comfortably in the Detroit burbs, she eventually finds herself rubbing elbows with the gross point elite when she gets a job as a part-time bookkeeper for one such matriarch, Mrs. Ann Morasco. She's as happy as can be. She was trying to semi-retire and just lessen her load, and she was just looking forward to enjoying herself. Unfortunately for Barbara, she will never get to enjoy her golden years. This ideal job turns into a nightmare. Officer Ed Schrader of the Gross Point Public Safety Office spends the bulk of his time dealing with petty shenanigans. We deal with auto thefts, shoplifters, DWIs. For the most part, it's a quiet community. But on Tuesday, June 14, 2005, that quiet is disturbed in a big way when a call comes in about a man down. Typically, a man down call is an elderly that has fallen out of bed or perhaps a heart attack. And this call, at half past three in the afternoon, doesn't seem all that different. A newspaper delivery person says she's found a woman lying face down in a driveway in an exclusive community. At the time, I had a rookie with me. My suggestion was we take the call, perhaps perform some CPR. Officer Schrader can't get to the scene fast enough. But when he arrives at the picture-perfect house on the corner of Dodge Place, he's taken aback by the lack of activity. It didn't appear if anybody was home. The street was quiet. It just seemed like a quiet, regular day. When Schrader pulls into the L-shaped driveway, he sees a parked car. But tall hedges obstruct his view. As he walks up the driveway, something catches his eye. A woman lying beside the bushes. She was laying face down in a large pool of blood. Once I saw that the blood had been dried, I knew that she had been there for quite some time. The woman was concealed in such a way that it wouldn't be inconceivable to have missed her for quite some time by passersby. There's no question the woman is dead. The victim is identified as 57-year-old Barbara Iskey from Sterling Heights, a neighborhood some 20 miles away. Officer Schrader isn't quite sure what went down just yet, but it sure looks like he's got a murder on his hands. The thought was a little eerie that broad daylight, something like this could happen. Good thing the police department is just a few blocks away. Within minutes, several officers are on the scene, including head detective James Fox. I was actually getting ready to go home for the day, and I heard the run on the radio of a woman down. Fox hasn't seen many homicides in his day, so it's quite a shock. But in no time, he regains his composure and gets down to business. When I observed the body, I also saw that uh, she had fallen face down. Her legs were crossed and were laying on top of her purse. Her wallet was actually by the side of the body. 
Clearly, the woman was taken by surprise. And when paramedics turned the body over, they know she didn't stand a chance. It was at that point that we realized she had a gunshot to the face. Being shot to the face seemed like it was an immediate ambush. A sneak attack in broad daylight. But why? It doesn't appear to be a robbery gone bad. There's still cash in her purse. Surely, the killer must have left some kind of clue behind. We started to look for anything that might be unusual. We were looking for bullet casings, footprints, anything from the victim's purse that might have been discarded in the bushes, but we couldn't find anything at all. And considering a woman has just been gunned down a few feet away, the residents of the house are strangely silent. We all thought it was odd that somebody in the house hadn't noticed that this body had been laying in the driveway. When detectives go inside the house, they don't get much help. Anne Marasco and her nurse are shocked to hear that the family bookkeeper, Barbara Iskey, is as dead as can be. She considered uh, Barbara Iskey a close personal friend. She couldn't believe that anybody could do this to her. According to Mrs. Marasco, Barbara was due at work at 10 a.m., but never showed up. Mrs. Marasco indicated that Barbara was never late. She was surprised that day when, when Barbara didn't show up as expected. That means Barbara was in the driveway for over five hours. Incredibly, everyone in the house claims they didn't hear a thing. I was uh, kind of surprised by that. But I also knew that the construction crews in the area were making a lot of noise. So it's a possibility that they did not hear gunshots. Investigators pump the residents for everything they know. But the well seems dry. There's one person they can't speak to, Anne's son, 51-year-old Joe Marasco, who's not home. Mrs. Marasco actually called him and notified him that Barbara's body had been found in the driveway. The talk with Joe will have to wait. They've got a killer to catch, and fast. But detectives are stumped. Folks in these parts tend to keep to themselves. But somebody had to see what went down on Dodge Place. It turns out somebody does know something. And by the next morning, police will have their first solid clue. But will it be enough to track down a killer? Brutal murders and the storybook streets of Gross Point, Michigan, go together like oil and water. So when Barbara Iskey is shot to death in one of the town's fanciest neighborhoods, everyone is thrown for a loop. I was absolutely shocked when I heard about the homicide here. The Gross Point City homicide was the first one, I believe, documented in 60 years in this city. For Barbara's family, the news is surreal. We got the phone call at um, about 11 o'clock at night when they told me that my aunt had been a victim of homicide. Of course, you don't believe it. This is a woman that did not have an enemy in the world. It can't be true. But unfortunately, it is. And it's up to detectives to catch her killer. Police hope the media coverage encourages anyone with information to come forward. And sure enough, the morning after the murder, 
two teenagers who live near the crime scene give police an invaluable tip. Both boys indicated that as they were driving by Dodge Place that morning, they heard two loud pops. They turned and observed two black males running to a sedan that was parked in the street in front of the house. Neither witness got a good look at the suspects, but both say they got an eyeful of the car, an old green Ford Tempo. I thought it was a good lead because they believed one of the windows was covered up by plastic, and that would make a vehicle stick out. And that's not the only thing that sticks out. I thought it was odd that a vehicle like that would be in that neighborhood because it's unusual for an older model car to be there. It was unusual for black males to be in that area. Chances are the suspects are from Detroit. Each witness is convinced the car headed down Jefferson Avenue, a road that leads straight to Motor City. But tracking down the car won't be easy, especially in Detroit, where Fords are as common as Robins in spring. The odds of finding that kind of car in Detroit are very unlikely, but we contacted the Michigan Secretary of State's office and requested a copy of all registered sedans that match that description. It turns out there are thousands of Ford Tempos registered in the area. Finding one particular car will require a Herculean effort. Sounds like just the job for Lieutenant Ed Tuyaka. The former Detroit cop also happens to be a techno whiz. His skills just might come in handy in this case. I'm pretty adept at computer investigations. I'm probably one of the best in the area. Through law enforcement, computer systems, there's an awful lot that we can find out about people. And Tuyaka will have plenty of people to look at. In less than 24 hours, his search generates a long list of possible getaway cars. Some were recently stolen vehicles that match this description. We ran down leads on vehicles that were found abandoned. We probably investigated about 500 vehicles on tips and everything else on vehicles that were close to that description that turned out to be dead ends. But after investigating several dead ends, Tuyaka isn't so upbeat. He has a sinking feeling his chances of finding that car might not be much better than the Detroit Lions Super Bowl prospects. Tuyaka turns his efforts and attention in a different direction. He hopes the coroner's report will help him crack this case wide open. The medical examiner estimates Barbara was killed around 10.30 Tuesday morning. And the coroner can clearly see just how devastating her injuries are. The medical examiner let us know the trajectory of the path that the bullets had taken. The first gunshot to the face severed her spinal cord, which caused almost instantaneous death. But that didn't satisfy the shooter, who took one last shot. The second gunshot was to the back of the head neck area while Barbara was laying down on the concrete pavement. But who on earth would want to execute a sweet-natured woman like Barbara? Detectives turn to Barbara's tight-knit inner circle, her family, and a few friends. Because so many homicides are domestic-related, 
you basically have to look at everyone connected to this person to see if they could possibly have been involved. There's not a single family member who stands out as a suspect. So detectives return to her employer's house to interview someone they haven't talked to yet, Mrs. Morasco's son, Joe. Joe Morasco voluntarily came into the station to speak with us. When detectives ask him where he was the morning of the murder, Good Time Joe, who has a penchant for drugs and fast cars, admits he doesn't have an alibi. Joe indicated to us that he left the house at approximately 10.30 that morning. It was our belief that he was probably home at the time the homicide happened. In fact, Joe says that when he left the house, he walked right past Barbara's car. But he didn't see anything unusual. He didn't see anybody in the car. He didn't see any car doors open. And that he just walked right by it and went down to his car, which was parked in the street. The story certainly sounds suspicious. But when police ask Joe to take a gunshot residue test, he doesn't bat an eye. He agreed to take the gunshot residue test, which told me that he probably didn't have any gunshot residue on his hands. In fact, Joe Morasco isn't even capable of holding a gun. Joe Morasco had had some traffic accidents, and through those injuries, I believed it to be near impossible for him to be able to hold a gun like that and to pull the trigger. And there's another fact that doesn't fit. Barbara knew Joe Morasco. Through our investigation, we strongly believe that Barbara did not know her attacker, that this was a stranger to her. With another suspect down, Tuyaka regroups. After scouring over his notes yet again, something jumps out at him. According to Mrs. Morasco, Barbara always used a laptop on the job. It was a laptop that was provided by Mrs. Morasco, and she had always consistently taken it to work with her. And when detectives conduct another search of the Morasco home, the laptop is nowhere in sight. Detectives don't know what to make of it yet, but Tuyaka has a theory. Perhaps the killer wanted access to its contents. The fact that the only item missing from the crime scene was the laptop computer told me that this possibly had something to do with the reason why Barbara was killed. Does the missing laptop hold the key to Barbara Iskey's murder? Lieutenant Eddie Tuyaka is determined to find out. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression, perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat, and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The shooting of Barbara Iskey shakes the idyllic town of Gross Point, Michigan, to the very core. A few weeks later, the unsolved murder is still the talk of the town. Barbara Iskey's niece, Karen Hibner, can't help but wonder, who killed her beloved aunt? My aunt did not have an enemy in the world. She was the most kind-hearted person. There is nobody that would have had any reason to harm her. But someone did harm her. And police need to know who and why. For head detective James Fox, this case is all-consuming. I was working from early in the morning to late at night every day, and it had an impact on my family life. The impact ripples throughout the department. It taxed every resource that we have in the department. We're a small department, and we have 25 sworn officers, and every one of the officers became involved in one way or another with the case. They all have their sights set on finding the killer's motive, but it's an elusive target. We still had no concrete motive, so we reached out to Crime Stoppers to put the information on their site. Police bet that someone has information about the crime, and their bet pays off, big time. Within a week, detectives get a tip from an unlikely source. One of our officers took his car in for repairs, and he was approached by the owner of the repair shop that told him there was a known prostitute that came in the shop all the time and had indicated that she had information about our homicide. Streetwalkers, especially ones named Boo, aren't usually the most reputable sources but they do have unique access to the criminal underbelly. I found that street prostitutes tend to be some of the best informants around with the most solid information. And Boo's information is rock solid. She had been at a house on 
Parkview Street in the city of Detroit, and she had overheard two of the men in the house bragging about the Gross Point murder. According to Boo, the men know more than they should, including the fact that Barbara Iskey was shot in the face. And they have something that was taken from the scene. She had seen them with a laptop computer and also with a handgun. She gave us details that only we knew. That has detectives hot to talk with the men. But Boo claims they are dangerous and won't come peacefully. She told us that they were heavily armed and that there would be people out in front with guns ready to shoot at any officers who happened to come by. Police will need to fight fire with fire. They plan a raid on the house and ask their big brother, Detroit PD, to lend a hand. Many hands. Zero Hour arrives. The men scurry off like rats on a sinking ship. They were bailing out of the house, and a couple of the individuals actually tried getting out second floor windows. The SWAT team quickly rounds them up, and all five men inside are arrested. When police search the house, they find not a single gun or laptop. We found no indication of all of anything in the house having to do with our homicide. But what secrets are the men themselves holding? The ringleader of the group, Dante Rose, admits to drug crimes. But police don't want to talk drugs. They want to talk murder. They had absolutely no idea of what we were talking about. They didn't know about any computers. They didn't know anything about the murder case. This isn't exactly turning out the way police hoped. We found not a single shred of evidence connecting them back to Barbara Iskey. Boo has some explaining to do. She was contacted and came up with some cockamamie story about why there was nothing there. Tuyaka's friendly neighborhood streetwalker apparently has her eye on the 10 grand offered as reward money and hopes her bogus story will help her collect. But instead of money, police reward her with a stern warning. I told her that she could be charged with a crime if she was to give us any more bad information like this. The bogus tip leaves detectives feeling discouraged. It's very frustrating when you follow leads with vigor and they're big operations and you're coming up with nothing. Whenever frustration starts to weigh him down, Lieutenant Eddie Tuyaka cuts loose. He's been riding motorcycles for over 40 years. But his pride and joy is his five-year-old Harley Heritage Softail. It's a great stress reliever, just cruising around um, on a nice motorcycle. The wind in your face, just letting all your worries and fears fly off your back. Some days he has a destination in mind. Other days, he lets the bike decide. I just like to get on it and take it off without a plan of where to go, just cruising around. But Tuyaka needs a plan if he's going to find his way to the killer. Police are two months into the investigation, and their best lead has just been shot down. They decide to return to the scene of the crime and take another long look at Barbara's employer, the Morasco family. The fact that the only item missing from the crime scene was the laptop computer told me that her murder had something to do with her employment for Mrs. Morasco. Like any good detective, 
Eddie Tuyaka works hard to develop sources with inside information. In this case, it's Anne Marasco's personal nurses. I had established a rapport with them where I had the caretakers now calling me on my phone, giving me inside information as to what was going on in the house. And there's plenty going on. The caretakers have heard rumors, talk of changes to Ann Marasco's will. It all had to do with the management of the financial estate of Ann Marasco. Does this have something to do with the murder? Tuyaka is determined to find out. But when he returns to the house, he runs straight into a stone wall, Ann Marasco. Mrs. Marasco was what could be considered old money and believed that what happened in her house was a private matter. Not only does Ann Marasco refuse to talk, she throws up other roadblocks. Mrs. Marasco was actively interfering with our investigation by threatening the caretakers' employment if they cooperated with the police. Tiaka quickly becomes convinced she's hiding something. I firmly believe without a shadow of a doubt that she knows who did this. She knows who was involved and did not want that information to get out. But Tuyak is determined to get the genie out of the bottle, one way or another. For more Nightmare Next Door, go to www.investigation.discovery.com. Two months after the brutal murder of Barbara Iskey in peaceful Gross Point, residents are still unsettled inside their elegant homes. The local police do their best to calm the public's fears. Leading that charge is the reassuring voice of Gross Point's police chief, Al Fincham. We felt that this was a targeted crime rather than a random crime. We did not want to have the general community feel that there was a crazed killer on the loose randomly committing acts of violence. But to folks in these parts, those words ring hollow. A killer is still on the loose. And detectives have a feeling that Barbara's boss, Anne Marasco, knows the motive for the murder, her estate. I believed we used several sources to learn that Barbara had gotten control over the estate and the trust. We also found that out from the documents that we had found at the house. Lieutenant Tuyaka has a feeling that change in power didn't sit well with everyone in the Marasco McMansion. But he's certainly not going to hear that from Mrs. Marasco herself. She's still not talking and determined to keep her staff silent. There was one point in the investigation in that we had to advise her that if she continued to interfere with our attempts to interview caretakers, that she could be criminally charged. The caretakers start talking. And do they have a story to tell? Joe Marasco was a man who was living off his mother's money, who was trying to manipulate her. He would yell and scream at her, especially over financial matters. Just because Joe had a temper doesn't make him a killer. And besides, detectives know he can't even hold a gun. So they go digging for more dirt. And it turns out, Joe's older sister, Madeline Sorge, has spades full. Joe's sister indicated that Joe's had a problem with drugs all his life. He's been in and out of trouble. He's been in and out of rehab. Rehab is a poor substitute for business school. So the task of running the family's printing business 
falls to Madeline and her husband, and Joe despises them for it. Two years prior, Joe's sister and her husband had a personal protection order out against Joe because Joe was making death threats against them and their family over business matters. Madeline says Joe sought revenge by convincing his mother to leave him the entire multi-million dollar estate. Joe felt that his mother and his sister both owed him something because he was pretty much thrown out of the family business and that they owed him for that. Madeline tells police Joe considered the debt paid when their mother changed her will, leaving Joe everything. But Barbara Iskey thought that just wasn't right and said so. There was a deep seated trust between Barbara Iskey and Mrs. Morasco, and Mrs. Morasco really trusted her. So much so that a year before the murder, Anne Morasco changed her will back, evenly splitting the estate among her two children. Barbara was instrumental in getting Anne Morasco's will changed, and Joe's sister told me that this absolutely infuriated Joe. Like a match to a fuse, the change ignites Joe's already volatile personality. He lashes out at Barbara Iskey. Joe's sister had observed Joe and Barbara arguing all the time, Joe making veiled threats against Barbara. It's a good motive, but detectives still don't think Joe's the killer. He doesn't exactly look like either man spotted fleeing the crime scene. We had the statement from the boys who witnessed two black males, along with a description of the suspect vehicle leaving the scene. We believe that Joe Barasco may have been involved in this somehow, but we still did not have any kind of leads or evidence as to who actually killed Barbara. It's time for a nice long chat with Joe Morasco. I knew pretty early on when I was interviewing him that he was not being truthful with me. Joe claims he has nothing to hide, so Tuyaka asks him to prove it. I'd asked Joe if I could see his cell phone, and he handed it right over to me, and I immediately started to go into his recent calls and noticed that there was a flurry of cell phone calls right at about the time that we believe the murder took place. Joe quickly develops a case of liar's remorse. When he saw what I was doing, he immediately demanded that I return his telephone to him which I did because I did not have a search warrant or anything like that. But that is easily remedied. Detectives get a warrant for Joe's cell phone records. One number stands out. I noticed that the same telephone number had been called several times the morning of and during and after the homicide. But who's on the receiving end of Joe's calls? IDing the phone's owner is complicated. It was what's known as a buy-and-go phone which means it can be bought at any kind of corner store, things like that, pretty much anonymous. And most corner stores don't keep records. Still, there's more than one way to skin a cat. We did get the cell phone records for this buy-and-go phone, and we were able to trace and track some of the phone calls made on that phone to other people listing their addresses. One of those other people is a Detroit woman named Rhonda Seaver. Detectives pay her an unannounced visit. But Rhonda's not in a helpful mood. Even though she was evasive in her answers, they observed a calendar in the kitchen with the telephone number of the mystery cell phone 
along with the street name Durkee underneath it. When detectives see the number, they give Rhonda the squeeze. She'll only say that the number belongs to her sister's boyfriend. Frustrated, Tuyaka gets subpoenas and hauls in Rhonda and others on the call list. He's determined to unmask Joe's mystery caller. When these people were brought down to the prosecutor's office, they identified the phone number belonging to Derek Thompson. Derek Thompson, a.k.a. Durkee, is no stranger to police with a long history of drug crimes. Not exactly killer material, but who is he palling around with? We looked at phone calls from Joe Marasco to Derek Thompson and then looked at who Derek Thompson called immediately after that. It turns out that number isn't a buy-and-go phone. It's one with a registered owner, Andre Lamar Williams. And Williams is bad news. A year and a half earlier, he was acquitted of a homicide charge on a jury trial and had been involved in possibly other homicides in the west side of Detroit. Andre Williams definitely has a killer resume. And he's old prison buddies with Derek Thompson. Tuyaka quickly puts two and two together. My gut feeling was that Derek Thompson was contacted by Joe Marasco to do this murder and that Derek Thompson started to call some of his old prison friends to try and find somebody who would do this murder and eventually found Andre Williams. But is there evidence that Joe's bad guys were at the crime scene? As a matter of fact, there is. We were able to show that on the day of the murder, Derek Thompson's cell phone hit on a cell tower that was merely two blocks away from the murder scene. Not only that, but Thompson's girlfriend puts him in a green Ford, hers. He commonly drove his girlfriend's vehicle, which was a very close match to the vehicle that was seen leaving the scene of the murder. Slowly, the noose begins to tighten. But the hangman is not yet on the gallows. It was a great circumstantial case, but nothing to tie everything together. Tuyaka wonders where that tie will come from. Little did he know, he was about to get a break of biblical proportions. Detectives are convinced more than ever that Joe Marasco had something to do with Barbara Iskey's tragic murder. Could he be the mastermind behind a murder-for-hire scheme that took the life of his family's gentle bookkeeper? With all the information that we had gained from the witnesses, hearing Joe arguing with Barbara, coupled with all the cell phone call connections, I believe that we had a pretty strong case. But prosecutor Bob Stevens isn't convinced. He's been putting bad guys behind bars for two decades now and thinks the evidence is slim. Sure, they have motive to spare, but is that enough? This case reeked of motive. It was clear what Joe's motivation was in this case. That motive is his mother's will and Barbara Iskey's role as trustee in the estate. The last thing Joseph Morosco wanted was Barbara Iskey controlling any stipends that he would receive out of a will or a trust. But does this make him a killer? While investigators are high on suspicion, they're low on proof. The phone calls tell us nothing. 
Phone calls just indicate there's contact between these three individuals on a frequent basis. We have no case at this point. Police think it's heroin that drew Joe Marasco and Derek Thompson together. What association would Derek Thompson possibly have with Joseph Marasco? Possibly something from Joe Marasco's drug past. But how does Andre Williams fit into the picture? There's only one way to know for sure. Ask. So all three men are hauled in for questioning. Joe Marasco refused to give a statement so he was not interrogated. Joe's silence is no big surprise. Police have higher hopes for the other two. They once again ask the Detroit PD for help. Derek Thompson was interrogated by Detroit Police Department homicide investigators. And he had finally given a statement saying that he had known Andre Williams from uh, being in prison together, that Andre had called him and asked him to give him a ride down to Gross Point. Thompson says Williams directed him to drive to the Marasco home. Williams got out of the car, saying he had something to pick up. Then, Thompson heard a noise. He thought he heard gunshots. Andre jumps back in the car, carrying a laptop computer, and he says, let's go. The cops know a self-serving statement when they hear one. But it's not all bad. Thompson's statement does move the case one giant step forward. It places him now at the scene in Gross Point, and he kind of blames Andre Williams as being the shooter. But Williams denies everything. So Tuyaka does a little digging. When we had arrested Andre and went through his backpack, we found that he had scripture writings on some pieces of paper and things like that. A Bible-toting killer? Tuyaka decides to help Williams in his quest for spiritual guidance. At one point on a Sunday morning, when I had delivered Andre his breakfast, I had asked him if he would like a Bible. I happened to keep a Bible handy, and he said yes. Williams is left alone with the Bible and his conscience. Two days later, another interrogation takes place. This time, Tuyaka reaches out to Williams, literally. I told him to please grab my hands, and he grabbed my hands, and I told him, looking right in his eyes, you know that the only way to salvation is to stand up and take account for the sins that you've committed. The fire and brimstone speech is working. He started to get tears in his eyes, and I says, I know that this bothered you, and he let loose and he gave us a full confession. That confession includes not only William's sins, but those of Derek Thompson and Joe Marasco. It was a 14-page handwritten confession confessing to absolutely everything involved in this murder with the inclusion of Joe Marasco having contacted Derek Thompson to do this murder. William says Thompson was the go-between, paying him $3,400 for the hit. He agrees to testify against Thompson and Marasco, and prosecutors charge all three with first-degree murder. But they worry that Joe Marasco's deep pockets may derail justice. He brought one attorney into the case and then proceeded to bring some three more into the case. My main concern was the person that was clearly the responsible individual would walk. To prevent that, prosecutors offer Williams a deal. The cliched phrase is, deal with the devil. 
he was offered a plea deal of 20 to 30 years, plus two years for the gun. And in return for that, he would testify on behalf of the prosecution. The deal is sealed. Almost a year to the day after the murder, Williams testifies against Derek Thompson and Joe Marasco. All three responsible parties were convicted in this case. Justice was served. That justice includes life sentences for Marasco and Thompson. For Joe Marasco, that life sentence is short. After serving just two years, he dies in prison. Joe Marasco informed us in the initial interview on the night of the murder that he had had AIDS for 20-some years. AIDS, which was contracted as a result of his heroin addiction. With a death sentence already hanging over his head, why did Marasco feel the need to kill Barbara Iskey? My belief is that Joe Marasco believed that if he had enough money that he could live forever. I find it very ironic that Joseph Marasco ends up losing everything in the end. With all the money that he wished to have, he wished to keep to himself, he lost it all. Joe Marasco never confessed to the murder. But thanks to Andre Williams' confession, police know what happened that Tuesday morning. The day of the murder, Joe Marasco's calling Derek Thompson, Derek Thompson's calling Andre Williams, making sure everything is set. Thompson picks up Williams in Detroit and drives to Gross Point. They park on the street and wait. Barbara pulls up, Andre Williams jumps out of the car. Barbara gets out of the car and grabs her laptop. Barbara believes that she's being robbed. She goes into her purse to bring her wallet out. But Williams doesn't want money. Andre, without saying a word, fires one shot into her face. She falls to the ground face down. Andre puts a second shot into the back of her head. Williams scoops up the laptop and runs back to the car. And he and Derek Thompson take off. Derek Thompson calls Joe Marasco at home. But Joe Marasco already knows the deed has been done. Joe Marasco, I'm sure, stood at the windows of his office and watched the execution of Barbara Iskey a mere 10 feet away from him. A senseless murder of a kind-hearted soul. The idyllic streets of Gross Point are safe once again, and the yachts still sail on Lake St. Clair. But for detectives, the Barbara Iskey case is one they'll never forget. As time goes on, you put it in the back of your mind, but it will always be there. And I think about it quite often. Barbara Iskey was a person that was loved by her friends and family. It was just a tragic, senseless crime that was perpetrated because of greed. For Barbara Iskey's niece, Karen Hibner, there's closure, but the sense of loss is still overwhelming. I would love my aunt to be remembered as the kind person she was. She was very close to her family. She was very close to her nieces, her nephews, her siblings. She was just a really, really good person who loved us all. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.